Good morning. Our first reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they didn't do so as we expected, for they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to, to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might, that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have much too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Our reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 15. And Paul writes, There is no need for me to write about, to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year in Achaia, that you were all ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thank God for the truth of his word. Amen. Amen. You know, my heart goes out to you when I see my name on the preaching roster. <laughs> Because I'm a shocker. I just can't bring myself to read a script. You know, I write this sort of thing, and the first thing I do is depart from it. And I'm already off script. It just struck me just now, when we were hanging um, these bags around. Do you realise that Christian churches have been doing this for such, ever since something like AD 52? For nearly 2,000 years. And we're only at an age now of chip and pin and gift, um, what is it, gift aid or whatever, and, um, uh, and yes, electronic transfer, but we, st we still do this. And it just struck me, my goodness, this is what, of course, my sermon is, is built around, it's giving in the church, and, and in particular, what Paul wrote about in, in those chapters we, we read earlier on. And it does strike me that subconsciously there is so much of what Paul actually wrote in those chapters that we don't, we're not aware that we're doing it. We don't spot, if you like, what he managed to introduce in, his, in the regime, if you like, that, that he provided for the churches. Um, and in particular, just, just, sorry, just, just to say, here it is. I mean, at one it's in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, every one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his, his income. Well, with that said, I'm now trying to wrestle to get back on script. Um, we read about the collection for the saints. And we're familiar, of course, with Paul's letters. It's a go-to place, isn't it, for any instruction we might wish. There's all kinds of encouragement. And when we read a letter of Paul, we suddenly discover, my goodness, yes, we know this text, don't we? We know so much of it off by heart. But what isn't necessarily understood 
is that, of course, we all know that Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. That much we know. What we don't necessarily spot is that he had a second commission. And he was very keen to make sure that it was indeed carried out. His second commission was as a fundraiser for the Jerusalem church. In Galatians 2, Paul actually sets out quite concisely the various journeys that he had to Jerusalem. And on one of them, he met, he and Barnabas, Barnabas met up with um, Peter, James and John. And it was agreed there that Peter, James and John would be the missionaries to uh, the uh, Jews in Judea. And meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas would go off and preach uh, to the Gentiles. But Paul would have to remember that he needed to collect for the poor in Judea, the poor in the Jerusalem church. Now why? What, what's going on here? Why is it that there was such extreme poverty in Jerusalem that meant that um, Paul was going to have to levy, if you, were, if you like, um, sums of money to be sent back to Jerusalem? And could we find a good reason in Acts 11, verse 27? It's written there, um, Luke records, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. Now that famine is also um, carefully described by Josephus and Tacitus. It was an established peace. What we're not quite certain of was why did this famine that clearly um, impacted over all of the Roman Empire, why was it particularly serious in Judea? And it could well be that, the, that there was a, a drought, maybe, that was particularly severe and prolonged in Judea. But equally, other commentators and scholars seem to think, well, maybe it's perhaps because, perhaps because um, where a Jew in Judea converted to the Christian faith, they were ostracised. So it may be that they were also economically isolated from the orthodox believers, and so they found it particularly difficult to manage and cope in times of poverty, in times of famine. Um, so that gives us the, the backdrop, if you like, to why there was this collection. And Paul was indeed strictly charged to make sure that he would do that amongst the Gentile churches. And Paul was very keen to ensure that he did. And hence the uh, chapters uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that we've read through. Um, I could now take those chapters out and just go through them line by line and, and um, yeah, nail each piece to see what Paul had prescribed. But I'm very keen to keep it in the context of the Corinthian church. I'd like us to understand how how Paul's words, how it impacted on Corinth. And it's for that reason, and I just want to um, have you revise your geography. Um, when I was a kid, um, with interminable sermons, in the back of the Bible, thankfully, there were lots of maps. Um, and, but with the aid of macro photography and 
pen on the sound desk, um, the very map that I would have been staring at for hours is now on the screen. And you will see that in, the, in our um, chapters 8 and 9, reference was, was made to Achaia, where you see that, it's a Roman province, you, you can see the outline of what we recognise to be Greece there. Um, Achaia was the southern province. Um, and we also read about Macedonia. Um, Corinth is in Achaia, and Macedonia includes Berea, Thess Thessalonica and Philippi up on the north. Just to then go to the next slide perhaps, let's just now nail down a little bit about Corinth. Corinth there, you see, is actually perched on this very skinny little isthmus that, that joins the Peloponnese Peninsula to mainland Greece. But that meant that Corinth was, if you like, was um, controlling trade routes into the peninsula from the mainland, but equally it was a, um, a city with two ports. It had a port at the eastern end of the Corinthian Gulf, that long, thin thing, running from the Adriatic. And it also commanded a port um, from the Saronic uh, Gulf um, on the Aegean. So it was at a crossroads, and trade would be brisk in, in all directions, and of course it was also of military uh, significance. Now that meant that when the Romans overtook uh, the Greek Empire, um, it was not until 146 BC um, that they could claim control of Greece until they had sacked Corinth. It was totally destroyed in 146 BC. It was turned into just rubble and it was uninhabited for something like 100 years. It wasn't until 44 BC that Julius Caesar um, required that Corinth should be rebuilt from ground up as a Roman city. So therefore you need to, the reason why I'm telling you this is so that you understand that when Paul was preaching to the Corinthians, he wasn't preaching to this venerable, long-standing, indigenous lot of Greeks who all descended from um, Plato and Socrates. He was preaching to the most extraordinary collection of people that had been gathered right across the Roman Empire. All nationalities would have been there. All mother tongues would have been spoken. It included some rich merchants, but there was a lot of slaves and working people. And every religion imaginable was practiced there. Gods and idols were everywhere. And curiously in Corinth, they almost loved it. They relished the idea of amassing gods. You may remember that just outside Athens, Paul had found this um, edifice dedicated to the unknown God. Um, and the same idea, if you like, was prevailing in Corinth. So every religious practice, every creed, caste, colour, nationality, everyone was there. But for Corinth, its particular infamy was the most appalling promiscuity. It was infamous at the time because of its outrageous sexual behaviour. It was known across the Roman Empire, a city given to debauchery. 
So it's against that backdrop that we see Paul going there as a missionary with trepidation. In fact, on his third missionary journey, he wasn't expecting to linger. He quite thought that he would spend a little bit of time in the comfort zone of the, of the synagogue and move on. But of course, he had a dream one night and Jesus appeared to him and said, no, stay here, Paul. There are people that I wish to save. There are people here that are children of God. And I suppose we could be sympathetic with Paul. Just what was he thinking over breakfast the next morning? He thought he was going to get off pretty sharpish to Macedonia, and actually he ended up spending something like one and a half years in this extraordinary city. I mean, this is a man who was a Pharisee. He'd been steeped in the law, moral rectitude, and he's just thrown in. Jesus appears to him, no, Paul, this is where you're to be. And for one and a half years, he was making, making tents. And he became a part of the community as he faithfully preached to them. And by the way, I just take time out. We don't have to be too surprised about some of the things that we read in 1 Corinthians. And it, kind of, it explains the, the division that was to be seen in the church there. Because every nationality, every creed, every practice was in place. I'm that bit about, just, just as a little hint, I mean, this crazy detail. But amongst the temples and amongst the religions, you know, in some it was absolutely insistent that women should keep their head cu heads covered. And in other religions, women should certainly not have their heads covered. So we don't have to go there now, but I can't help but feel Paul was thrown in at the deep end. You know, what, do you, what, what is it, Paul? What's the answer? What Paul was up against was this amazing group of people drawn from so many nations and with such, such background. Drunkenness at communion. Well, if you're a Corinthian and you had a bit of money and you were being invited to a celebration, well, you'd bring, a, you'd bring some wine and plenty of it and you might drink a bit too much. So there was that to be sorted out. But we know and this is the extraordinary bit. I, I just read to you, in fact, it wasn't on our reading, but it's, it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul is confirming what he had clearly already told them about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Why was it so important to him? He'd been asked to go off and get, get a collection together. And he was absolutely diligent. And do you realise, I, I mean, in that bit that I happened to read, he explained to the Corinthians he'd already told all the churches in Galatia to do it. It really was something that Paul did throughout his ministry. When he's writing 1 Corinthians, he's writing it from Ephesus. Well, if he's in Ephesus, he'd be telling the churches there the same thing. So this was what Paul's mission almost seemed. It put him at risk, probably. Because we know, for example, in the Corinthian church, there were those that were Apollos, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul. And Paul, I mean, there were people there who were absolutely adamant, this guy's a fake. Are you totally mad? The guy's a fake, he's just an itinerant tent maker. He's not a proper apostle. What apostle makes tents? And here he is, actually laying upon the burden of a collection 
And unfortunately, when Paul slightly changes the rules a little bit about how this collection was to be got to Jerusalem, immediately they're all crying out, well, there you go, he's looking to make off with the money. So Paul was putting this obligation to, to those that he, he preached to as, as a, it was a matter of, it was a matter of creed for him, and it had to be done. So, there was more to it for Paul, probably, than just the relief of those who were in poverty in Jerusalem. And to get under his skin and to understand what's going on, we need to understand, of course, that Paul was coming under a lot of scrutiny from Christians in Judea and in the church in Jerusalem. They couldn't understand why was it that he wasn't laying the entire law of Moses on them. What's he doing in a place like Corinth? So for Paul, he believed clearly that giving and giving to the church in Jerusalem was a crucial, almost, almost political move in some senses. It was to demonstrate to people that indeed... You didn't need to lay law upon people to have them saved. We were in a new era where God would pour out the Spirit on His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on all people. And the Holy Spirit would lead them all in, into all truth. That was what he, he was about. He wanted to see generosity and love. <coughs> Appear from those that he was preaching to as evidence of how they were responding to the generosity of God's love to them in Jesus Christ. I'm digressing very slightly when I say I think that prayers of intercession are a little bit like that. Just now, we're, I'm grateful to Ray, obviously, for leading us in prayers of intercession. And I was following them carefully and thinking through what he was praying for. And we all added an amen. So be it. Yes, we do indeed pray that God will graciously consider our prayers. But something more is going on here. As Ray is praying, we're getting a little bit of a window, aren't we, into his soul. We're hearing the things that are on his mind, the things that have burdened him. I regularly lead into sessions in another congregation, quite a small one. Um, and in that congregation, there's an elderly lady. And I have to say, I'm very fond of her. She's very sweet. But I know that she'll collar me after the service whenever I come out in intercessions. And you can just, I just know she marks me out of ten. And it was, it was about, I don't know, 18 months, two years ago. I mean, things were really getting rough between the superpowers, China and Russia and the USA. I think it was something to do with North Korea at the time. And I remember then I was praying that God would graciously bring wisdom to the likes of Donald Trump and the leadership in China and so on. So inevitably she caught me at the end of the service and said, well, you know, that was all wasn't it? You're praying for China and for Russia and for the United States and I'm sort of thinking, well yeah, I would, you know, it's, 
this is serious stuff. And she obviously thought this was the height of optimism. That in a very small congregation tucked away in the home counties, and I should be praying for the world. I think she feels that my prayers would have had more success if I'd limited them to the workings of Horsham District Council. <laughs> but the truth is that it's in our prayers that, of course, we are confirming to ourselves, aren't we, what's important to us. It's a means whereby we actually think through and, if you like, analyse what's in our hearts and articulate them. And we're sharing them with others around us and to the, corporately to the world at large. And maybe in a way we are also testifying, aren't we, to principalities and powers of what the Spirit is that's within us, <coughs> the Holy Spirit. It's part of that testimony. And for Paul, for Paul, that's exactly what giving was. Paul saw that if he could show that the churches that he was preaching to could actually get together that collection for the saints. Yeah, the saints were worthy. They were in poverty. But I think for Paul it became a matter of such importance because for him it was the endorsement that God, God was active amongst the Gentiles. That indeed God was pouring out his Holy Spirit upon the flesh. And hence the rule the ones that somehow we probably now sort of understand, it's almost subconscious really, but it can't be a tithe. It's not tithing. If you decide, right, okay, I'm going to absolutely demand that for the membership of this club, you've got to give so much a lump sum or so much a year, that's your membership fee. And it's this lump sum, or we calculate in this way, it's this formula, it's a tenth of your income, it's a tenth of your capital. If it's a tithe, it doesn't actually say anything about you. Good for the recipients, maybe. The poor in, in Jerusalem would have been relieved, but it wouldn't have actually done quite what Paul wanted. He wanted to show that without the law, Without the tithing demands, God's Holy Spirit was moving. That's what he was earnestly desiring. And I've lost my notes. <laughs> That's why he was first, he, he, he was, I read it actually, I read it, I shouldn't have lost it. He, do you notice that? Um, that he was re reporting to the Corinthians what had happened in Macedonia. That first they gave themselves to the Lord. That was what he saw as the first step. You can't show grace or generosity unless you really know what the grace of God is. His generous provision of Jesus Christ nailed to a cross for us. Unless that's really eaten into your soul. You won't know generosity. So first, he was pleading, certainly pointing out that the Macedonians had given themselves to the Lord. And then, do you notice the words again? I've read it, and I might have read it too quickly. 
entirely on their own. And that does come over, it comes over in, in, in spades. That, that Paul repeated it. I want this collection for the saints put together before I come. I'm not going to stand over you to do it. So get the collection done before I come. He was able to report, of course, because of that ploy, he was able to report of the Macedonians, they were entirely on their own. It was to be done joyfully. You see, if giving was to actually reflect this exuberant concern, exuberant joy in what God has done for us and the concern for the recipients, it's got to be done joyfully. He was adamant. He really didn't want any of them to give begrudgingly. And equally, he laid it on them they weren't to actually give so as to actually get themselves in poverty. There's no point doing that. It's got to be giving generously, but yes enough, so that you feel comfortable and pleased, <coughs> pleased for having done it. That's a part of why, what he wanted. He wanted to be able to demonstrate that what was coming in as relief for the saints in Jerusalem was indeed what had joyfully been given. And yes, indeed, he, he did urge them to give generously. So how did the Corinthians fare? Um, Paul went back. Uh, he, he went back to Corinth to write his letter to the Romans. And in Romans, so he was actually in Corinth at the time, when in Romans 16, verse 25, he wrote, At present, I'm going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor amongst the saints of Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That is evidence that Paul needed to show that God was alive in their hearts, that the, the power of the Holy Spirit was taking people in Corinth out of this extraordinary background. That he wrote in about AD 57. You know, I don't, I don't know if I should raise it, but you know, don't, one really wonders if in the end, if those who are in poverty in Judea as a result of the famine, a lot of years have gone by, something like seven years, it may well be that things have turned around a bit in Judea. But Paul was going to do it. He was going to do it because he wanted to show that the Spirit of God was alive in the Gentile churches. And for Paul, one almost thinks, on his journey, he must have been thinking, it's a, like, it's a bit like the tale of the two cities. He'd been brought up a Pharisee. He'd been taught by Gamaliel. He was taught to believe that Jerusalem was the holy city of God. 
And on the Temple Mount, there was this magnificent, and indeed apparently by all the contemporary descriptions, it was the most astonishing construction. Herod's Temple, it was glorious. That was the house of God. But Jerusalem had presided over the crucifixion of God's Son. Paul was coming from a city that was renowned for debauchery. It had an acropolis. On the top of that acropolis was a temple to Aphrodite. And prostitution was allegedly part of their worship. And yet Paul knew that the Holy Spirit of God was reaching into that city. God was no longer in the temple in Jerusalem. He was in Corinth, calling out for those who were his. And Paul's evidence was in his hand. It was the collection that he was taking back to Jerusalem. It was the proof. It was, it was the proof that, yes, God was at work. Isaiah 9. The poor people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. The tragedy in this, we know, or we can certainly infer, that Paul gave all of these instructions to all of the churches. But we don't read of any collection from Galatia. We know they got the same instructions. We don't know or read of any collection from the Colossians or the Ephesians. It's an astonishing thing that when Paul went to Jerusalem with that collection evidencing how God was at work amongst the Gentiles without the law, that it was from Macedonia that was famous for its poverty and from Corinth which was famous for its excesses. Let's just finish by praying that God will find in us too a spirit of generosity. We too must give this evidence of the spirit within us. We must give without compunction. We must give joyfully and we should give generously. Amen.